Good to see you. And I know you have your Bibles open, Acts chapter 1. Let me tell you that uh, this weekend marks the uh, 18th anniversary of our church. And it was 18 uh, years ago on September the 16th, 2001, uh, that Harvest Bible Chapel Berry officially launched. And our first uh, official location was Emma King Elementary School up in the northwest corner of the city. And uh, how many people, I know in the first service, we had a, a good number of people that were in that first service. Anybody in this service, raise your hand if you were in that first service in September 2001. Peter, and y'all are newcomers. Okay, that's good. So, uh, um, but anyways, it was, uh, it was uh, a great time. We're at that little elementary school. There were 128 people in attendance that morning, uh, including 27 kids, so 100 people in the worship center. And our total offering for uh, that week was uh, 1500 and forty-seven dollars and forty-four cents. Uh, so fifteen hundred bucks came in in the offering. And in the eighteen years that we have been a church, we have not counting the the months that we were at the Sunnydale Community Center pre-launch, but after our official launch, we had three different uh, worship locations, um, and we had nine different office locations over those eighteen years. And uh, we have seen God work in some pretty extraordinary ways in our church, and certainly grateful for all of that. As I think back to uh, that gathering of people, that small group of people that started that church, something very specific motivated this church plant. And uh, we had seen so many churches, and, and even I could say Christians, so many churches and Christians who had grown stagnant in their passion for Christ. And Harvest was launched really with people who, who wanted to always be reaching for more and not to at all be content with the status quo. And, and Cheryl and I, when we came in January of 2001, and met with that original group of eight families, that's what we found in them, that they were uh, very, very motivated to see something different, something more happen in their lives and in the church. And if they had been content with the status quo, they certainly wouldn't have uh, started a new church. They would have been part of one of the existing churches that was in town. Many of us at that time uh, were influenced by an author by the name, author and pastor by the name of Henry Blackaby. And some of you may remember his book, Experiencing God. And one of the key phrases that comes out of that book was to watch to see where God was working. Watch to see where God was working and then join him there. Go there and be part of what God was doing. And in, in the passage we're going to see in Acts chapter 1, that's really what was happening. The first followers of Jesus Christ were like those believers all those years ago in Barry, but they were the first ones to do it. They were getting ready to launch their church in Jerusalem. And what we see in their heart attitudes and their decisive actions really does continue to speak to us today. As we think about now we're in year 19 and we think beyond year 19, if, if the Lord doesn't come back first, we're asking ourselves a question. If we want to continue to be a people who are reaching for more, reaching for more in our personal walk with Christ, reaching for more in our marriages and our families and in our friendships, reaching for more as a church to see God work in an extraordinary way. And if we want that, then we're going to take note of how these first believers did what Henry Blackaby said they should do. They joined themselves to what God was doing. And I want us to join with God in what he's doing here. And in fact, let's ask it this way, and this really flows out of the text. What does it look like when you and I are ready for the Holy Spirit to move? Because what we've seen already in the book of Acts 
is, is the believers being given a promise that the Holy Spirit was going to come. And, and the very next message in Acts chapter 2 is the actual coming of the Holy Spirit. And here we are in this in-between time now, asking ourselves the question, we've heard the promise, we know He's coming. Do we want to be a part of it? Do we want to see the Holy Spirit move in our lives and in our church? So let's turn to the Scriptures. This is Acts chapter 1. I'm going to read uh, verses uh, 12 through to the end of the chapter, and you follow along. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. Now this man acquired a field With the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So One of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Let's bow in prayer. Father, it's uh, no small thing for us to pray for the Holy Spirit to move. Uh, Father, we're putting a lot on the line if we pray that prayer, and if we look at these scriptures, and if we open ourselves up, to what you would have for us. Father, we know that there's tremendous blessing, there's there's power behind that prayer and, and you answering it and moving in an extraordinary way. But nothing about that is easy. And so God, I pray that you would do the hard work to soften our hearts, to receive your word in a way that we understand it, in a way that we believe it, in a way that our wills conform to it. So God, at the end of this message and as our lives continue on from this moment, God, we would not be hindering the Holy Spirit's work in our lives at all. But we would would be doing everything that we need to do to see a great move of the Holy Spirit in our lives personally and in this church. Thank you for the 18 years we've had as we set our sights forward, Father. Please go with us. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen? Amen. All right.
This is what we're going to go after here. When I'm ready for the Holy Spirit to move, several things are going to be true in my life. Several things are going to be true in your life if you're ready for the Holy Spirit to move in your life. Here's the first one. I'm eager to obey. Now, back in uh, verse 1 of chapter 1, Uh, Verse 4, sorry, of chapter 1 of Jesus, that's last week's passage. Jesus actually told them, I want you to go to Jerusalem, I just want you to wait. So he gives them one command, go to Jerusalem and just wait there for me. And verse 12 tells us it's exactly what they did. Uh, They uh, they, uh, obeyed. There was no questioning, there was no hesitation, there was no pushback. There was just obedience on the part of these apostles, these followers, just go to Jerusalem, wait for me. And um, is it okay if I point out a, 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 a core problem that we have as human beings? Is it okay if I point that out? Is it okay if I point it out? Yeah. It's okay. All right, good. I was going to point it out anyway, but I thought I'd ask. See, our problem as human beings is that we chafe against the notion of obedience. We don't even really like the word at all. And, and inherent inside of us is this rebellion that we get to the place where we just don't want anyone to tell us what to do. And any of you who've ever raised children from very, like you've had an infant, you just know initially they're just so sweet and so dependent and you don't see the sin nature, but it doesn't take long, does it? I mean, they're three, four months old and they start to yell and you can tell that it's not a cry because they're uncomfortable. It's a cry, a cry because they're a little angry with you. And attitude starts to come out even in those first few months. And you just go, oh, yes, they do indeed have a sin nature. And they don't want to obey. It's a little ridiculous for a three-month-old or four-month-old. But the older they get, the more you realize the thing that you're trying to get them to do is to listen to what you're saying. They want. They don't want to obey. And you want them to obey. So it's hardwired right inside of us as human beings. We've been trained, but we are also naturally predisposed toward asking questions, pushing back, challenging what other people tell us. And in our society today, in fact, there's this growing lack of respect for any authority structures in our lives. It manifests in our unwillingness to obey or to submit to the authorities that are in our lives. We've made everything in our lives a matter of choice. I'm not going to do that because you told me to do it. I'm going to do it because I choose to do it. And all of it is wrapped up in this notion that we have that we are personally autonomous. In other words, I run my own show. And so it plays out in that line, who are you to tell me what to do? Now, parents, parents have cultivated this in child-centered homes. Educators have cultivated this in student-centered learning. We think about government. We ought to obey our government, but government gives us little reason to want to do so. Can I say it that way? Church leaders, the failures of church leaders have actually given us reason to say, obey you? You've got to be kidding But listen, unless we obey in in even these small, seemingly insignificant things like 
Go to Jerusalem and wait. It's not a big deal. It's not a big ask of any kind. It's just go to Jerusalem and wait. They could have stayed there. They could have gone to Galilee. They could have gone anywhere. He just said, just go to Jerusalem and wait. And they did. It's a small thing. And Christians, unless we begin to obey, unless we submit to the authorities that God has established, unless we submit to his word, unless we become, in essence, this is what I'm asking, unless we become countercultural to what's happening all around us, then we'll never be ready for a move of God's Holy Spirit. We must obey. We must be okay with obedience. We must be eager to obey God. And listen, obedience, this is why we chafe against it, because obedience always requires change. Obedience always requires some kind of change. If I'm going to obey the authorities around me, it means that either... There's something I'm doing that I need to stop doing. I need to repent of it. I need to stop doing this thing. Or there are things I am not doing that I ought to be doing. So I either need to stop something or start something when I'm being asked to obey. And change is just so hard. And so what sin needs to be confessed? What, what discipline in our lives needs to be started? What thing do we need to obey God in? Because again, unless we're willing to go against the prevailing culture in our society today, unless we're willing to obey, we will never see a move of the Holy Spirit in our lives or in our church. Here's a second one. When I'm ready for the Holy Spirit to move, I'm eager to obey, and I'm in one accord with fellow believers. I'm in one accord with fellow believers who, by the way, are also ready for the Holy Spirit to move. In other words, the people that I'm going to surround myself, if I actually have a desire for the Holy Spirit to move, then the people I actually want to surround myself with are people who also want the Holy Spirit to move. Does that make sense? That's just pure logic. The Christian life is actually meant to be lived in close community, and the mission that we've been given is meant to be accomplished as a team. And that's a theme you're going to see repeatedly through the book of Acts. And as we study it over these months and years, listen, we're going to be looking at the book of Acts. We're going to see over and over again, it's people doing things together for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when they got to Jerusalem, they weren't far, by the way, they were just up on the Mount of Olives, which if you've ever traveled to Israel, it, there's, there's, Israel there's Jerusalem, there's a valley, and then there's a, a mountain, um, just off to the side, there's mountains all around it, in fact, and, and there's a plateau and an, an area where olive trees grow, and you stand there on a platform and you can overlook the entire city of Jerusalem. It's just about a kilometer away because we know from the text it was just a Sabbath day journey away, so just over one kilometer. So they were in the Mount of Olives and they went down to Jerusalem. Verse 13, when they got there, they went up to the upper room. Same upper room, we don't know. Uh, that they shared uh, the Last Supper in, but, but perhaps. Here they call it the upper room, as if we already know what it is. And then we get this roll call of the, of the 11 apostles, minus Judas Iscariot, who had betrayed Jesus. And, and they're all there, verse 14 says, together, notice, with the women, all these women who'd also been following Jesus all the way along. And this is the last mention of Mary, the mother of Jesus, last mention of her in the Scriptures, and his brothers, 
So listen, this is important that all of this gets mentioned because his family wasn't always on board with him. When Jesus started his ministry, in fact, his family all thought that he had kind of lost it. And if you go back to the book of Luke and you see in Luke chapter 8 that his family had actually come for him and he was busy doing some ministry and, and the disciples come to him and they say, hey, listen, your family is here for you. And Jesus kind of knew what was going on. And he said, to him, listen, the, the people that are my family are the people that are on the mission. The people that I'm with, the people that are obeying God, that's my family. These are the people that I'm together with right now. And in fact, if you look at the same story in the gospel of Mark, Mark goes a little further to say that his brothers had actually come because they thought he had lost his mind. Our brother's delusional. We're doing a family intervention. We're going to go get him and we're bringing him back to Nazareth and we're going to settle him down. This whole preaching around thing is ridiculous. That's where his family was at. Well, now you see why it's so important that in Acts chapter one, Luke tells us they're all on board now. His mom, his brothers, they all now believe in him and are following him and are part of the company of the church. In fact, verse 15 tells us that the company of persons was in all. This is the total worldwide church now. Numbers numbers 120 people. Curiously, almost the same number of people that started Harvest Bible Chapel Berry. That was it. So I kind of have it in my mind. That's what it looks like. This is all the people that they had. 120. And 20. Now, notice what Luke says about their attitude, verse 14. All these, underline this, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. We're going to come back to the matter of prayer in the next point. For now, see that they were with, they were with one accord. If you have the NIV version, it, it actually says this the New International Version says they, they were all joined together. And that kind of makes it sound like they were just in the room together. So it's kind of like we are of one accord or any group of people anywhere were with one accord. In other words, they just happened to be all in the same place at the same time. It means a little bit more than that. And the New American Standard Bible actually translates it this way. They were all with one mind and that captures it best. They were all with one mind. In other words, they had heart agreement. They had shared belief and shared attitude. They had harmony. They had oneness. Now, to think about that, that you could get a group of people that would be that unified around common belief and common mission. Because again, I feel like in this message, I'm, I'm ripping on our culture and our society an awful lot, but we live in a very disagreeable culture. That we actually think that, that disagreement is such an awesome thing to have. It's so easy to find people who disagree on any number of issues and to raise that. That's why sometimes when you get to, you know, Thanksgiving's coming up here. And that's why you're like, okay, we're going to get our family together. But no one talk religion and no one talk politics. Okay. There's certain topics that we, we say are off limits because no one wants to upset the eating of the turkey. Okay. So (laughs) let's not bother with that. So we're going to stay away from these topics because listen, We just have it inside of us to be so disagreeable about all of these things. And a little known fact about Canadian history is this, that uh, Tim Hortons was actually invented so Canadians could share coffee and their opinions with one another. Did you know that? Okay, when I wrote that down, I thought it was funnier than that. (laughs) Throw me a bone here, okay? So, So we have a democracy, a political system that is based on disagreement. And it's so much easier for us to be adversarial with one another and to have opinions, to argue our positions on things. And even to say, and we love this phrase, let's just agree to disagree. 
Now, all of this is rooted, if you go back to the history of philosophy and you realize that the Western world has been influenced by the Enlightenment, which encouraged us in a very positive way to be critical people and to think for ourselves. The end result of the Enlightenment is postmodern philosophy, which goes all the way to a place where we can't go, where postmodernism now says we've questioned things so much that we've now pushed truth into the realm of relativism so that there is no objective truth. Whatever you believe is true and whatever I believe is true, and that just seems so nonsensical on its face. Two things cannot be true if they're opposite to one another. So it's really tough. Again, we're trying to latch on to this whole idea of, of we as the church you know, to, be, to be in one accord with one another. It's tough to be with one accord if postmodernism is your thing. So in the cultural context in which we live, the followers of Jesus Christ are being asked again to be something very countercultural. The followers of Jesus Christ dare to have a common doctrine. We dare to be unified in mission. We dare to have a source of truth, the word of God that we trust and live by. We dare to worship a God who is one and believe that we are joined to him in one body and that Christ is the head. These disciples of of Christ, these 120 who had gathered in the upper room, they were unified about several, unified around several very important beliefs that no one outside the room believed. They believed in the person of Jesus Christ, that he was and is the Son of God. They believed and had witnessed his crucifixion and believed that his death on the cross and his shed blood was the atonement for sin. They believed and saw his resurrection from the dead or saw him resurrected from the dead. They saw him ascend to heaven. And before he ascended to heaven, they heard him give them a mission, promise them the Holy Spirit, and assure them he was coming again. All 100 And 20 of them believed that with all of their heart. And so they were with one accord. They were with one mind about all of this. Now, the question is, does that describe you? Does that describe me? Is that true of our church? Have you done everything you can do to demonstrate to the people around you, to demonstrate to your church that you are of one mind with that church, this church? Have you assured the people around you that you are unified with them in belief and in mission? Again, we hit on these last week, so if you heard the first message, but we're hitting on them again. How else do we show our oneness with one another except by the common rite of baptism. The biblically prescribed rite by which we testify to our faith in Jesus Christ and declare that we have become Christians. And if you've not been baptized according to the Scriptures, then it's time for you to do that, to declare your oneness, your with one accordness, with the universal church. I have been saved by Christ. I've been baptized as a testimony to my salvation. And I am now identifying with the capital C, universal church of Jesus Christ. 
If you've not done that, you need to do that. Or, or by, by declaring your membership in the local church. Your baptism shows that you're part of Christ, the global church, but, but now your membership, I get that we read the scriptures and we don't see pres- prescribed in the way that we necessarily do membership in that way. We've kind of made it work for us. But a membership is nothing more than saying, I'm with this church. I'm for what these people are for. I'm going to get under the leadership of this church. I'm going to get under the elders of this church and I'm going to let them cast a vision and I'm going to be a part of it. And when I sign the paper, when I say that I'm for that, I'm demonstrating that I'm with one accord. I'm for the vision. I'm for the values. I'm all in. Some others by small group participation, by my by my generous giving, by my um, finding a place of service and using my talents for the Lord and my time for Him. And when we have all of these things, when we're doing all of this, we're demonstrating that we're with one accord. And when we do that, we create fertile ground for the Holy Spirit to move. And that's what we're seeking. Now third, this is also true when I'm devoted to prayer. We already mentioned this from verse 14. Notice, um, they were devoting themselves to prayer, and that's a general statement about what the church was like. This was a praying church. It was a praying group of people. And then after Peter had spoken and laid out the need for a new apostle to be appointed, verse 24, they prayed specifically about that. So generally speaking, they were a praying church, but specifically, this is what they were praying for in this particular passage. And, and prayer again in the book of Acts, we're going to see this over and over again. There's no getting away from the fact that the church was a praying church. There's so many opportunities for us as we just think about that and why that's important to us and how you ought to be a praying person. And I get that this is, without exception, this is the hardest thing that we do as Christians. Learning how to pray. Being able to pray. And part of that is because we live in, we live in such noisy environments. We're so busy. We're going a thousand miles an hour all the time. And we have so much input coming into our lives and we've crowded out any notion of a one-on-one intimate conversational relationship with our God. And as hard as it is and as easy as it is to dismiss prayer and say, you know what, it doesn't seem that important. Life goes on anyway. It's so hard to do or to do prayer in some perfunctory way. We've just got to do better than that because we're never going to see this move of the Holy Spirit that we want unless we're really committed to passionate prayer, devoted to this. And uh, we provide many opportunities for prayer. This is going to be super practical here, but many opportunities for prayer in the life of this church. And I'm just going to tell you, engage in these. Take advantage of these. You know, we have prayer in our worship services here. Jordan prayed and and, uh, I've prayed in this service. And I, I wonder what you're doing when someone from the front is praying. I wonder if some of you um, are drifting off, thinking about where should we go for lunch? Uh, Maybe some of you are looking at your phones. Maybe some of you are reading something. Maybe you're checked out and your, your thoughts are just going in a different direction of some kind, but you're not really thinking. And then when you get to the end of the prayer and you realize, because you haven't been listening, you realize that the person at the front has just said amen and people around you are saying amen and you say amen because you think that's the Hebrew word for oh, glad it's o- I'm glad it's over, right? 
But it's actually, it's actually the Hebrew word for, I agree. Or so be it. And so, listen, in order to be able to say amen at the end of a prayer, you had to have listened, listened to the prayer. And, and so, engage in prayer in that way. Let, let that wash over you. Be a part of prayer in, in that fairly easy way, a pre-service prayer. There are people who gather here before the 9 a.m. service, and I know I'm talking to the 11 o'clock folks, but people who come here, and maybe you could even think about that, but there are people who come here, and they, they come early, and they walk through the hallways, and they walk into the rooms, and they pray about what's going to go on in Harvest Kids, and what's going to go on in this worship center, and the conversations that are going to be had in the South Lobby, and they pray over this building, and over every aspect of the ministry that happens on Sunday mornings, and maybe you could come early and be part of that. Uh, Maybe you should receive, if you don't already, the Prayer Matters email that goes out from the staff on Thursdays and talks about all aspects of our ministry during the week, and you could pray through that. Or or the Connect folder that goes by, or if you fill it in on hbc.info and and you submit a prayer request, you know that we get upwards of 140 prayer requests every week that come in either online or through the Connect folder, and they're all prayed for. There's about two dozen people who are very faithful to do that. We have elders and staff who get that list and who pray through all of that. But maybe you would just say, I'd love to get that prayer list and pray through it or pray through part of it. And if I could, if I could do that, would you send that to me? And, and that could help you intercede and, and love on some people here that have put prayer requests in. We have four or five worship and prayer nights through the year, and those are all always very special evenings together of prayer and always done a little bit creatively. And uh, we had a downtown prayer walk in August, and um, that was a really special time for those who are participated in that. The elders, of course, elders and some other leaders will be up here at the end of the service, and I think about how many people who are just like, I need prayer. And we have leaders up here at the front who would love to pray for you, men and women who would love to lift up your request before the Lord, whether praise items or prayer items. And come and take advantage of that and meet with them and let them pray, pray for you. And I think about prayer in our small groups together during the week and our staff and our elders have dedicated times of prayer in their meetings and all that to say, um, one of our pillars is that we believe firmly in the power of prayer. We believe firmly in the power of prayer. And there will be no move of the Holy Spirit apart from us praying. And we also believe, and this is a saying that we use a lot here, if we don't pray, nothing else matters. If we don't pray, nothing else matters. All the activity, all the ministry we're doing, all the effort we're putting into things, if we are not also seeking the Lord for His Holy Spirit to come and fill our efforts, then really it's all just very mechanical and not worth very much at all. There's going to be no move of the Holy Spirit apart from a concerted effort in passionate prayer. It's hard, but let's get after it. All right, here's another one. Um, I'm attentive to Scripture. I'm attentive to the Scriptures. Uh, Verse 15, um, in those days, again, Nazby says at this time, Peter said, Verse 16, brothers, and we can include sisters, there's brothers and sisters, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. Let's pause there for a second and just reflect on, this is the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is how the Bible has come to us, that that holy men of God wrote down what the Holy Spirit inspired for them to write. And Peter's acknowledging that here with regard to David and the Psalms. He's going to cite, quote, a couple of Psalms in just a moment. So uh, here's, here's Peter talking, brothers and sisters, scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, verse 17, for he was numbered among us 
and was allotted his share in this ministry. In other words, he was an apostle. He was one of the 12. Now, Peter knows they need to address this because they have a vacancy. They only have 11 apostles right now. And so Peter's stepping up into his leadership role, but he's not doing it on the basis of his experiences. He's not doing it with his wisdom. He's not offering his opinion about these things. He's leading with the Word of God. He's fronting the Scriptures in what he's saying. Now, this was so true of Peter that if you go uh, over to chapter 4 in verse 13, and, and we'll look at that eventually, but he's off preaching in Jerusalem, and they're seeing incredible results from their preaching. Thousands of people, in fact, are giving their lives to Jesus Christ and being baptized, and, and the religious leaders are so upset about it that they bring them in for questioning, and they're astounded because, they're astounded because Peter and company are handling the Word of God so well. They're preaching like pros, but they're not. And in, in, in Acts 4.13, the religious leaders actually say they recognize that they were uneducated, common men. They didn't go to seminary. They didn't go to Bible college. They never got a clue what they're saying. Peter, we know, was a fisherman who worked with his hands. He didn't sit at a desk. He didn't study. And yet here he is unpacking the Word of God in a way that even the scribes and the prophets couldn't. And Peter knows that any authority he has to lead comes from the Word of God. And so he takes them through this whole thing about Judas, and some of it, of course, is a bit graphic there, you know, bowels splitting open and guts everywhere kind of stuff. A little rough for a Sunday morning. Verse, that's all in verses 18 and 19. And then in verse 20, he says, this is where he takes him to the Scripture, for it is written in the book of Psalms, notice what he says here, may his camp, this is now speaking about Judas, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. And that's what happened with that plot of land. And this is a quote from Psalm 69, verse 25. And, um, and then let another take his office. So we need to find a replacement. That's Psalm 109, verse 8. And, and, and all of this to say, Peter's, Peter's doing this because he's attentive to the word of God and he wants to fulfill the word of God and do what God had laid out for them to do. Now, here's a challenge for me as I read that. And we had this conversation in our staff meeting. Pastors and directors got together on Wednesday and, and we started talking about the, 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 the paucity of, of Scripture knowledge in the church today, the, 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 the lack of Christians actually in the Word of God for themselves. And in fact, many, many Christian leaders will talk about the lack of even basic biblical literacy, not just in the culture, but the lack of basic biblical literacy even in the church. People don't know the Bible, even Christians. And, and this is a big shift from, you know, at one time, if you wanted to know if a church was a real Bible teaching church, one of the ways that you would know that is just stand in the parking lot and watch people as they come into the church. And if they're carrying a Bible with them and lots of people are carrying the Bibles in, you had a pretty good idea that this was a church where they were being told to get the Bibles out and look at it and learn it and grow in what the Word of God said. Now that's a bit different today because so many of us have gone from carry your Bibles to church, talking about analog print Bibles now, okay, to carrying digital Bibles. So a little survey, not meant to embarrass anybody at all, okay? But a little survey, how many people still prefer print version of the Bible? Hold it up. Don't raise your hand. I don't know if you have it. I want to see that you have it, okay? Just hold up the Bible. That's right. I'm supposed to take your word for it. Come on. All right. So, so a lot of you. Now, how many people you'd say, like, I prefer the electronic version. I have it on my iPhone or iPad right here. Just raise it up. 
show me the screen is on, right? Just like at a concert or something. Wave it back and forth for me. That's right. That's right. So, so more people using their print Bibles here than their electronic Bibles, but that, there's a big shift happening in our culture. Now, here's the thing. I told you I didn't mean to, I'm not, I'm not going to embarrass anybody here because we've, we've fully embraced the digital world here at Harvest. I'm not saying ditch your iPhone for a print Bible. That would be just foolishness. In human history, the reality is that, that in all of human history, we've only had a print version of the Bible available to us over the last four centuries. Before that, people did not have their own copies of the Word of God. Before that, the Bible was taught orally. People remembered the stories. They were rehearsed over and over again. They learned the passages. They memorized them. And so here we are in the 21st century now, we're adapting. Information is delivered in a very different way than it was in the past. Almost no one, and I won't get you to raise your hands here because it'll just be embarrassing for you if you raise your hand, but almost no one gets a newspaper to their door anymore. No, I said, don't raise your hands. It's so embarrassing. The news is so old. They have to write it. They have to print it. They have to deliver it to you. It's like last week's news by the time you get it, when you can get everything right on your phone. We can talk about this later. Okay, so we don't get newspapers at our door anymore. I remember being like a, I remember being a paper boy as a kid, and I had like so many papers in the two big canvas bags on the side of me, I could barely walk, right? Do you remember that? Okay, we don't do that anymore. We, we don't buy, why go, to, why go to chapters and buy a John Grisham book that you have to carry and pack in your suitcase for your vacation? You just get that on your e-reader. We, 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 don't, we don't get information the same way that we did before. I don't get any bills, not a single one, not one bill comes to my house in an envelope. Magazines have all but disappeared and very sad for those of us who love sports, but Sports Illustrated is no longer publishing a print edition that even, even something as huge as Sports Illustrated recognizes. There's no sense putting this on paper anymore. Things have changed. And so our response to this seismic shift is not to resist it, not to say you still have to carry your print Bible. If you like that and prefer that, do it and use it. But our response is this. No matter how it's delivered, I must be attentive to the Scripture. Amen? No matter how it's delivered, I must be attentive to the Scripture. And so how do I do that by whatever means? In other words, you know, I don't care how you deliver the Bible to your head and heart. I just care that you deliver it. So if you prefer the e-readers, if you prefer an app, if you prefer to read it on your phone, then do that but be sure to do it. So a few uh, suggestions that I put down here. I have five of these if you want to write them down. Nothing earth-shattering or revolutionary about this at all. The first one is this. In order to be attentive to the Scripture, be here on Sunday. Just be here to hear the preaching. There's no substitute for what we're doing right now and doing it together in the same room. To be of one accord in hearing the scriptures together. And so many of us, again, a trend in our culture, even among Christians, is to, on Saturday night or Sunday morning, to actually be thinking about whether or not I will go to church tomorrow morning. 
somehow in this whole idea of personal autonomy and I get to choose things, that that becomes a choice. And if you're a follower of Christ, Christ, I'm just telling you, it shouldn't be a choice. You should wake up and the default is I'm going to church. Now, if you're bleeding profusely, if a limb is hanging off, if one of your loved ones has the same kind of thing and you need to stay to help them, or if you have to work, or if it's a legit we're going on vacation, not, oh, we woke up this morning and decided to do nothing and not go to church, and it's kind of like a vacation day. No, you're just making that up. If you love Jesus, you need to be here. If you want to be attentive to the Scriptures, you need to be here. And then secondly, I've made my point, secondly, when you miss, listen to the audio or watch the video. Because we're doing this long series in the book of Acts, and it all ties together, and you can already see we're only two messages in. You can already see how the first message tied into the second message, and it's all going to tie into the third. I've already talked about themes that are going to trace throughout the entire book. You don't want to miss any of this. You're going to buy those journals in the resource center. You don't want a blank page on the message you missed. We need to hear all of this, and so all of that's available to you online. You should take advantage of that. So listen or watch when you miss. Third, get in a group. I've said this already. Get in a study group. Get in a home small group. Go deeper into the Scriptures with some other people in a, in a more intimate setting where you can talk these things out. Fourth, and this is important, get your Bible open during the week on your own. Get your Bible open during the week on your own. Now, here, here's the thing. We used to preach this, and I, I can remember preaching this as well, you know. You know, the last time your Bible was open was last Sunday when you were here. You heard me say that before? Okay, the last time was last Sunday. And, and so it's, it, it plays well because it's your Bible, right? Or, or check your Bible. If there's dust around it, if there's dust on your Bible, it's time to get it open again. Well, you, you see, dust, you, you don't get dust on an app. But the principle is exactly the same. Let me ask you the question. If you have a Bible app and that's your thing, when was the last time your app was open? Was it last Sunday? See, I don't care about how you deliver it. I just care that you deliver it. So get your Bible open during the week on your own. And listen, there's some wonderful resources. So if you don't have a good version of the Bible, then get to the resource center and buy yourself a Bible if you like analog, if you like to have actual print in front of you. And if you, if you don't have an app, download an app. And I'm going to give you three suggestions here. The first one is version, which is by far the largest. It's an incredible resource. Um, like 100 million people are using this app. Uh, there's so many millions and millions of downloads. The stats are incredible. If you go to the website, you can see all of this. And um, it, there's 60 different, uh, 60 different languages. And so if, if English is not your first language, um, you, can find, um, you can find the Word of God in your own heart language and read it that way or read it in both. There are, in fact, 60 languages, over 1,900 different versions of the Bible. It's a free app, so that's incredible. And uh, get your kids ready. There's a, there's a kids version of the version app. And so how many people here, you have version on your phones already? Raise your hands. That's awesome. That's great. So keep using that. Keep doing that. You, can have, you have reading plans, and you can get verses pushed to you so that you get text messages or emails that remind you about all of this. The second one, I just, I just came across this week. It's called the Dwell app. And uh, this one's actually subscription-based. You have to pay for it every year. Uh, and this one's all audio-based, so maybe you have a long commute, or maybe you find reading difficult, and that's true for a lot of people, but it would be really awesome to have somebody reading it to you. And so the Dwell app does that. And what's really cool about this, it's still very incomplete and still very much in development, but right now they have a few voices, and, and so it's only in English right now, but 
you know, if you really want the scriptures to sound super holy, we all know that just listen to it in an Irish accent. I mean, it just sounds super holy if you do that. I'm not wrong about that. And so, so you can pick the Irish accent to listen to the scriptures and it just sounds super cool and holy. So that's the Dwell app. And then the one that I use is the ESV app from Crossway. And of course, that's our preferred translation here that, that we use. And I use that, that app all the time. It's on my phone and it's the one that I refer to when I'm not reading it out of my um, print Bible. Um, and again, get one of those apps. Y'all should get one of those anyways, even if you prefer a print Bible. I use both. I go back and forth on those all the time. And, and I'll say this before I share the, f- the fifth one with you here. One of the constant challenges, even as I'm encouraging you to get into the scriptures and read it, is that for many new readers of the Bible and many casual readers of the Bible, it's hard to see the unifying theme to see what God is doing in some of the passages. So in the New Testament, it's a little clearer. You can read that, and it's, it seems to be a little clearer how it's all being put together. But when you're reading through the Old Testament, say you're reading through the narratives of uh, Kings and Chronicles, and it's like, yeah, I get it. He was a really bad king, and he killed a bunch of people, and, and then he died, and God punished him, and another came in, and he was worse than the last guy. I get it. But how does that fit with the whole story? Or you're reading through the prophets. Tell me if this hasn't happened. You're reading through the minor prophets, and you're like, what in the world, right? It's like, I have no idea what this guy is talking about. Anybody? When you're reading through the prophets, right? And that happens. And, and it really isn't hard to find some very simple resources that can kind of click that all, all in place for you. And so here's what I would suggest uh, to you is um, get a study Bible. This is number five, get a study Bible. And um, I would point you, first of all, to the ESV Study Bible, obviously, because, again, the translation we prefer here, it's, um, you can get that printer online, and if you buy um, the hardcover version of the ESV Study Bible, which I bought and now sits on my shelf, but you get the code to use uh, the online Study Bible, so all the resources for me, and that is uh, one tab on my browser that is always, always open is the ESV Study Bible, and I use that um, through my study in the week. But if you have a different study Bible, don't necessarily go out and invest in that one. If you have an NIV study Bible, you have a life application, or you have the MacArthur study Bible, you're in good shape. Those are all great uh, tools to use. And so before you start reading, you know, Obadiah, read the little paragraph in front of Obadiah and read some of the notes on the side and see how it fits into the whole uh, picture of the entire uh, scriptures and so many resources that you can use there. All right. One final thing that I just want to say about this in terms of studying the scriptures and our encouragement that you have the word of God open in front of you as I preach. And you may notice that we put a lot of things up on the screen. We put the, the, the main idea of the message. We put the message points. We put quotes. We'll put cross references up there. If I quote, I'm going to quote from another passage in a minute or two. We put those up there, but we never put the principal passage. So like Acts 1 is not in front of you today on the screen. And the reason for that is very intentional. The reason is I want you to have it open in front of you. I want you to have your Bible open, your Bible app open. I want you to make notes. I want you to circle things and highlight things. I want you to see it in its context. And I want you to be able to handle the Word of God yourself. And so that's very intentional that we do it that way. And all of this, everything I've said under here, listen, all of this is going to help you be attentive to God's Word and it's going to make, way, make a way for the Holy Spirit to move amongst us. Does that sound good? Okay, ready? You got, you got room for one more? All right, good. Um, here's the last one. I'm clear on the mission. All right, they needed to pick a replacement for Judas. That's kind of the, the whole point of this passage. They need to pick a replacement for Judas. And there was three criteria that were given to us in verses 21 and 22. First of all, had to be male, okay? 
Ladies, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just telling you. It had to be male, okay? Had to be with them from the start uh, and from the very start, like John the Baptist start, like Jesus got baptized and we were there and we saw the whole thing. And then three, eyewitness of Jesus' resurrection. They had to have seen him alive. And, and they're picking here for the unique role of capital A apostle. Capital A, this is an actual office of apostle. There were only ever 12 of them. And these 12 men were given special status and, and are the first key leaders upon which the church is built. In fact, Joel mentioned in his reading in the worship package about the foundation, the church being on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And uh, Luke, um, in Luke 22, Luke recorded for us the words of Jesus where he said that the, that the 12 apostles are actually going to be judges of Israel. And uh, so this is a pretty important role for the church upon which the church has been built. Charlotte and I had the privilege this summer of traveling to the UK, and we were in London, and we, uh, we went to Westminster Abbey. We have a couple of pictures here um, outside the Abbey, and just an amazing uh, edifice, and, and it was initially started, and the first Abbey was built a thousand years ago, so it's been around for uh, pretty much all of English history. And uh, along the north side of the building, in the north door, uh, this is where you line up to go in for the tours. You can't take any pictures inside. Look at all those rope lines right there. I'll just tell you right now, if you're ever traveling to London, you're going to Westminster Abbey, buy your tickets ahead of time. Those rope lines are all for the poor suckers that didn't buy their tickets online ahead of time. We were in a really short queue because we, you know, Todd's not dumb. All right. (laughs) Cheryl's not dumb. All right. So, yeah. Thanks, Blair. So, so, um, so this is the north door, and then if we get a, a zoom into what's going on above the door, you see the, the uh, carving of Jesus at the very top, uh, crowds at the bottom, but right there in the middle, that's the 12 apostles. That's the 12. No captions, so I don't know who's who, but uh, that's the 12 apostles, and you can see their, their, their preeminence in the church, the importance that they had for the church, obviously, because they were the key primary eyewitnesses who were with Jesus from the beginning, and they lent legitimacy to the church and to the mission. But then they passed it on. They passed it on as capital A apostles. They passed it on to small a apostles. We looked at this word last week. It simply means sent ones. And there were many, many others who were sent after the 12 to carry on the mission. And Paul would say this much later in uh, 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. Uh, here's, here's what Paul wrote to Timothy. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul's saying to Timothy, you heard me teach you some things. I want you to find some men and women. I want you to find some people. I want you to pour into them. And then I want you to tell them to find some people and pour it into them. And then I want you to tell them to to pour. And every generation is looking for the next generation to pour the gospel mission into so that, well, listen, this is why we're meeting in 2019 in Barrie, Ontario, because 2 Timothy 2.2 was obeyed, it was carried out, and the message kept getting passed down from those capital A apostles, those first 12, right down to all the small A apostles today, all of the sent ones who are carrying on this mission. And so we look at the, the book of Acts and we see how this played out. It's interesting, in the coming months as we study this book, you'll see, first of all, Stephen, who is not part of the Twelve and who preaches a message in Jerusalem and then is 
immediately martyred for his faith. We have Philip, also one of the seven who were picked in Acts chapter 6 as leaders in the church. Philip had four daughters who, who prophesied and preached. We had Priscilla and Aquila, this, this couple who carried on a teaching ministry in the early church. Apollos and Barnabas, the apostle Paul himself, who was a special Apollo, uh, apostle. With Timothy and Silas and Titus and James, who was Jesus' brother, who became a leader in the church in Jerusalem. And of course, Luke, who wrote the gospel and this book of Acts. And every single one of them were crystal clear on the mission. Verse 23. So they, so they get to it. We, we understand the concept now. We're going to pass this on. But now back to the business that had to be taken care of, the filling of this vacancy. And so they put forward two candidates, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias, these two candidates who fit all the criteria. They were there at the baptism. They saw his old ministry. They were a witness to the resurrection. They had all the criteria. Now, I realize that the selection was bathed in prayer. I recognize that God led in the selection of who it was. But really, I'm here to tell you this morning, the real reason why Matthias was chosen over the other guy was because no one knew what to call the other guy. He had so many names. It was so confusing that eventually people just said, I don't even know who I'm voting for anymore. Let's just pick Matthias. Does that sound right to you or not? Maybe, maybe, maybe I made that up. Now, here they are with all these candidates, and understand that this isn't just a, a thing where, okay, Matthias gets chosen, and, and, and Justice says, you know, I'm just going to walk away, and it was just an honor to be nominated. It wasn't really an honor to be nominated. This wasn't about status and position. This wasn't a, about getting a carving of yourself put on Westminster Abbey. We're just weeks after the crucifixion, six weeks after the crucifixion, they're picking a replacement. There's only 120 of them and they're in an upper room and they all realize that the religious leaders made it possible for Jesus Christ to be crucified and every single one of them could end up on a cross. They all knew the risk that they were taking for this mission. They were crystal clear on it. So they prayed, verses 24, 25, then 26, they cast lots for them. That was a common way at the time to pick leaders. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. He joined the mission, and that tidied everything up and got it ready for what was next. And, 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 and there should be no confusion. There was no confusion for them. There should be no confusion for why this church exists and why every Christian has been called a sent one. We are here to glorify God by making more and better followers of Jesus Christ. That's the mission. Make more and better followers of Jesus. That's what he told us in, in verse 8 of chapter 1. Be my witnesses. Go tell people about me. Baptize them in my name. And churches that fail to see the Spirit move have confused their mission with things that Jesus did not give us to do. But if we set the making of more and better disciples as our mission, we pave the way for the Holy Spirit to move in an extraordinary way among us. We eliminate all the distractions so that every single thing we do as Harvest Bible Chapel is entirely about the making of disciples. So let's wrap this up. 
It's fun to think about the 18 years that God has given to us as a church and to rejoice in all of that, to thank God for it, to reflect on all that's happened in all these years. But the more important consideration for us right now is not all that God has done and all that we've experienced in the last 18 years, but it's what kind of church do we want to be right now? What kind of Christians do we want to be? We want a church and we want Christians in whom the Holy Spirit is working powerfully. So let's do everything we can possibly do to make it possible for Him to do that. Let's pray. Father, we are uh, once again humbled by Your Word and um, to, to just see in a passage like this that that on its face just seems so simple and just about replacing a leader, and yet there's so much behind it. And Father, I pray that we would, um, as, we, as we looked at God, I pray that we would be obedient at the most basic level with everything else that we've heard here, Father. It really comes down to that. Will we do what you've told us to do? So, Father, help us to again hear what you've said to us, believe what you've said to us, and then commit our way to your way. Father, we want the Holy Spirit to move in this place. We want extraordinary and even unexplainable things to happen. We want people who are not part of this church and who do not believe in Jesus to be astounded, amazed, by what you're doing here. Not what we're doing, what you're doing here. So Father, please work. Please hear our prayer and send your Holy Spirit. We pray in Christ's name.